We're reading from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and, the, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Praise be to God. It'll come as no surprise if you've been listening for the last couple of minutes that we are in the book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation, to a group of seven churches. Extremely excited to begin there this morning, teaching um, in vision, and so it's my joy to be able to begin to open up this book for us. And so why don't we take a moment before we do that, why don't you check in a little bit with where you are, maybe how you're feeling um, oftentimes we don't stop and check in how we're feeling. And what I'd simply invite you to do is to invite Jesus into that place. Jesus promises, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he joins us no matter where we are in our emotion, in our feeling. And so invite him there and then we'll continue and we'll jump into this first chapter of Revelation. Jesus, what a gift it is 
to know that you are with us. God, I pray for anyone in this room that does not know you, uh, is confused by the reality of having you with us. What does this mean? Jesus, you are all-powerful. You have all authority. And so I pray this morning that you would do the mysterious yet profound deep work in meeting us. God, we thank you for this letter of revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would learn, that we would be challenged, and that we would be encouraged. That in the midst of our time, in the midst of the environments that we find ourselves, that you are the conquering king. You are the faithful witness on our behalf. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I was involved in a community organization, and it came time for us as the leaders of this community organization to decide who was going to fill each position. There was going to be a chair, there was going to be a vice chair, there was going to be a secretary, there was going to be a treasurer. And I thought coming into the meeting, I wasn't serving in any formal capacity at that point, but coming into the meeting, I thought that what we would probably do is have a conversation around the table and give people an opportunity to volunteer and say, well, I'd like to do this based upon gifting or based upon season of life. Maybe they had the opportunity to give themselves to that particular role for the next little bit. So I was a little bit surprised when I arrived uh, at our meeting and the chair of our team at that point said, okay, everyone, thanks for sitting down. But what we're going to do is we're going to go out into the hallway. And I was like, okay, this is a little bit interesting to kind of get set. So we went out into the hallway and what she had done is she'd pre-placed pieces of paper on the ground. And on one side of the paper, not facing up, she had placed each of the roles or each of the positions for the leadership team, and they were facing the ground. And so what she was going to, what she continued to do is she invited us to do is she said, what I would like you to do is I would like you to just take a few moments to kind of stand in place. And then as you're sensing the energy coming off of each of these pieces of paper, I then want you to go and stand on the paper that you're getting the energy from. And then when nobody else is looking, step off of the piece of paper, lift it up, see what the role is, put it back down, and then come into the room. And then we'll compare notes with one another as far as what role you should have as we continue in this endeavor of leading this community organization. And I was like, okay. Okay, now, I, I appreciate the experience because it was probably a little bit of, you know, this is probably how some people feel when it comes to certain traditions within the Christian faith. But as I continued to do my work with this community organization, I came to realize that this exercise was probably more acceptable or welcome than if I had been the chair of the leadership team and said, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like us to just say a word of prayer before we get started in choosing who's going to be on the leadership team. And you could probably agree, I mean, if you are living in this world at this time in places where you live, where you learn, where you work, or where you play, you know this, that there are some things, especially as it relates to Christian tradition or faith, that there are other worldviews out there, and those worldviews, and those positions, and those ways of coming to solutions and to conclusions are more likely accepted in your particular environments than some of the traditional practices of Christianity, when at one point, these practices were normal, now they are no longer. And the experience that the scriptures come to describe this reality of being the minority and not being the majority is a scriptural world used that is exile. Now maybe some of you are familiar with the term exile, but this is the way that the scriptures describe being this minority versus the majority. Now Walter Brueggemann defines exile as this. 
It's the experience of knowing that one is an alien, and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. Maybe you haven't thought of yourselves as being a person in exile within our culture, but I think Brueggemann's definition is helpful to us. John Mark Comer had a book come out this week. It's called Live No Lies, and in it he describes three shifts that have happened in our culture regarding their views or culture's views towards Christianity. The first one I've already hinted at, he says, is from majority to minority. Ten percent of young adults, according to a study in the U.S., now identify themselves as resilient disciples. Now this is obviously a shift over time. Historically, this would not have been the case. We're now 10% alone in the U.S. as young adults. He then says, we've moved from a place of honor to a place of shame, where at one time followers of Jesus were at the center of culture making. We are now on the fringes, even if they're at all. Thirdly, he says, we've moved from widespread tolerance to widespread hostility. You know, Christian values now are not just considered weird. For many people, they're now considered dangerous. Now, I think it's worth providing the caveat that Christians have not always been very good at representing the ways of Jesus in the world. And in many ways, now the way that we are viewed at times is not maybe surprising compared to the way that we have treated people, certainly not out of love, likely out of a way of wanting to have coercion or control. But in the midst of this, in the midst of this time that we are living in, followers of Jesus, if you consider yourself one, have a choice in which we can choose between compromise or faithfulness. If it's getting and feeling more like exile within our culture, we must ask the question, do I compromise to what is happening around us or do I lean in and become even more faithful to Jesus and into following him? And then beginning to ask ourselves the question, if there are things that we should compromise on, what are those things? And so the question that we are going to be asking and answering for ourselves as we continue, as we begin this study in Revelation is, how do we remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of exile? How do we remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of exile? And the answer, and to help us answer that question, we're jumping into Revelation, which is a letter written to seven churches who are at the precipice of also having an opportunity, precipitous, to choose between compromise or faithfulness. Now, you're maybe a little bit uh, confused about Revelation. You've heard people say that the vaccine is the mark of the beast, and so you're like, where does that come from? And you do a little Google search, it's like Revelation. Uh, We might not get to that specific detail, but here are some helpful things for us to consider as we come to Revelation, because for many of us, it confuses us, and in many ways, it should. But what I want to do today is to provide a little bit of some helpful information as far as what Revelation is, how we can begin becoming interpreters of this word, and then people that want to apply it to our lives and our culture. But it's really important to begin with, how do we remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of exile? Now, Revelation The author of Revelation, we are told in the book, in this first chapter, is John. Now, strong scholarship suggests that this is also the same author as the Gospel of John, and also John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, a disciple of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus says that he loves. 
also the writer of the other letters of John. The place of this writing is on the island of Patmos. I have a photo here on the screen of where the island of Patmos was located. And what it was was a small rocky island 10 miles long and 5 miles wide in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And it was likely the place where the Roman uh, government sent offenders. We actually read in verse 9 of chapter 1 that John has been exiled to Patmos for this reason, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What we are to understand then is that John is removed from the mainland due to the Roman authorities' desire to inhibit the growth of the early church. Tertullian claimed that John was plunged in boiling water. Now, that claim is what many believe legendary at best. But what we can then understand is that John, in his writing, is one who has paid the price of exile for faithfulness in proclaiming the word of God. And therefore, he fully understands the difficulty. And it is here on this island of Patmos that John receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Revelation 1 verse 1, Revelation 1 verse 1, is the Greek word apocalypsis. And it's a type of literature which is found in the Hebrew scriptures and in other Jewish texts. It flourished in the biblical world between 200 BC and AD 100. An apocalypse was an unveiling of God to unveil the forces of that were at work in the world. Tim Mackey in the Bible Project, maybe some of you are fans of the Bible Project, he says this about Jewish apocalypses. He says, Jewish apocalypses recounted a prophet's symbolic visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. Now, Revelation, again, if you're familiar with it, it uses symbolic imagery, it uses numbers, and they were not intended to confuse, but in order to communicate with us. And most of the imagery is drawn from the Old Testament, and therefore, a key to understanding these texts is to revisit the Old Testament and understand what they are alluding to. Now, compared to other apocalypses written during this time period, John and the revelation of Jesus Christ and this apocalypse is unique. And I think it's worth exploring a couple of these reasons. The first is that John identifies himself by name instead of using some false name. Oftentimes, those who are writing the apocalypse would use a, a synonym for a name, but he identifies himself. And he uses this in a way to say that he speaks from the conviction of God. And therefore, John in this wants to delineate between revelation here and other apocalyptic writings. Another interesting note about this apocalypse versus others is that while most apocalyptic writing was pessimistic, John is balanced and also confident as you continue going through the book that God is both sovereign and he is in control. For most apocalypse, the present evil age is without meaning. In contrast, what Revelation points to is the redemptive activity of God in human history. And then a final point worth making about this revelation that John gives to us of Jesus Christ is that John considers this work to be prophecy. Verse 3 of chapter 1. What a prophecy is, it's a word from God spoken by a prophet to God's people to comfort 
or to challenge them. Therefore, this book is apocalyptic prophecy and was sent to real people who John knew. Continuing then, Revelation, as I've said, is a letter written to seven churches. Now, this is important because what we can do is we can remove Revelation from the context in which it is written, and it's sent to seven churches. And because it is a letter, John is addressing these churches. He writes, as we'll come to understand over the next number of months, with an authority that exhibits that he's some type of leader in relationship with these churches as he has an intimate knowledge of their affairs. The churches themselves, we'll go back to the map that I had up earlier, were seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. Asia normally refers to the Roman provinces that occupied the western portion of Asia Minor and then stretching inland. These seven churches, they were located on a great circular road that bounds the most wealthy and the most influential part of the province. Each of these cities were located about 30 to 50 miles apart. And there's oftentimes question of why were these seven churches recognized? And one of the suggestions is that the emperor likely had some sort of desire for each of these cities to worship him in some sort of unique way, as I'll explore here in a moment. And these letters were then sent as a circular letter to be read to every single church, not to one church specifically, but to all of them. The seven letters are therefore intended for the moral and the spiritual progress of all seven churches. And as you and I will come to see over the next couple of months, is that the letters address both strengths and weaknesses of the seven churches. And what we'll come to see is that they are also strengths and weaknesses that are characteristic of the church throughout history. And I would suggest even our own church in this season. It is also worth noting that seven is a symbolic number in the scriptures, often referred to as a number for completion. You think of the seven days from Genesis. The next question I just want us to consider as we consider this introduction is why the revelation of Jesus Christ and why the revelation of Jesus Christ now? Well, the background of revelation is the conflict between the demands of a totalitarian secular power being Rome and then allegiance to the Christian faith. Most place the revelation and its writing during the reign of Domitian, if you know anything about Roman history, of AD 81 to 96, or right after the reign of Nero. And throughout Revelation, the Roman Empire is personified as a beast who demands universal worship, insisting that everyone must bear his mark or be put to death. Now, the imperial cult, specifically in Asia Minor, where these churches are located, worship the, emperor, worship the emperor as one who held divine status. I have a photo here on, on the screen of Julius Caesar. He reigned from 49 BC to 44 BC. And Julius Caesar accepted worship at a, as a god during his lifetime. We then have Augustus in 27 BC to AD 14, also a photo on the screen. And he sanctioned temples to himself in certain provinces Following his death, he was widely worshipped in Asia and in other western provinces. From 54 to 68, we have the Emperor Nero. And under Nero, the imperial cult was firmly established as a religious institution. And then we have Domitian. And in his reign, 
Failure to worship him as the emperor, but also as God, was a political offense and was punishable. And this isn't just something that we find here in the scriptures. You can study history. And under Domitian, persecution of Christians by the state on religious grounds took place for the first time because he saw Christians as politically dangerous. He even had a cousin executed and a niece banished due to their atheism. Atheism being they would not worship him as God. And so as we come to this letter, what we are also coming into is a history in which Jesus gives this revelation to John with an understanding that you think persecution has been bad under Nero. Get set. More is coming if you have not begun to experience it already. And what Christians would say is rather than worshiping the emperor, who, does, who do Christians worship? Jesus, him alone. But to make that claim, to put your faith in Jesus, was to say then that Domitian is not God, and therefore you could be killed, executed. And as we study early Christianity, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christians were killed because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Because they refused to say, I will not worship Jesus, I will also worship the emperor. And so, Jesus calls the churches to be faithful. And when they do, they will conquer and receive a reward of the final marriage between heaven and earth. Doesn't that give us a greater picture of Revelation 21 and 22? Jesus addresses in chapters 2 and 3 the specific problems facing each of these churches. There was apathy due to wealth and affluence. There was moral compromise. And then there were others who were faithful amidst the suffering and persecution. Now, I think we have to be careful as we study. Because while these churches' situation was far more severe, and we have to recognize that, right? We can't say, oh, I'm like one of these churches who is experiencing this level of persecution. We are not. We are experiencing a marginalization. We are experiencing being a minority, where at one point we may have felt like we were in a majority. We are not these first century churches. But we are a church that in the midst of our culture is faced with the same question of will we compromise or will we remain faithful to Jesus? A time when, as we talked about over the last few weeks, our culture is speaking to us these things of be whoever you want to be and just do whatever works for you. A time where Spencer talked about last week of the priority of authenticity or the discovery of your authentic self, your true identity. A time of radical individualism, a time of syncretism, of mixing faith with idols of our culture. A, a, a time when you need to have freedom from the idea that you need salvation at all. A time when freedom is defined as freedom without any sort of boundaries or limits or constraint. A time when there are to said to be no moral absolutes. How do we live faithful to Jesus in the midst of this culture? How do we remain faithful? And so what I want to suggest is that you and I need a way forward. We need a better story, and we must think critically and live passionately as faithful followers of Jesus. 
I don't know this morning where each of you are finding yourselves in the places where you live. We'll use this language a lot if you're new to us, where you live, work, learn, and play. I know in some of the personal conversations that I've had with some of you, you're feeling the pressure and wondering, how do I honor Christ? And maybe you're here today and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus and you're, you're starting to ask some questions like, what do they mean by this faithfulness to Jesus thing? How does that look different? Are these ideas within our culture, are they not good? Do they not lead to freedom? And to that, I would just simply respond with the question, are things really great out there today? I think we could look at the increased um, challenges around mental health. I think we could look at the increased challenges around the political and polarization that we're experiencing in the world. We need a better story. We need another narrative. And the scriptures provide it for us. And what we'll learn from each of these seven churches and the revelation of Jesus Christ to each of them is what are the things that need to be at the top? And as an example, next week, we were going to read about a church that they had good doctrine, they seemed to be doing really well, yet the thing that Jesus points out about them is that they lost their first love. They forgot their first love. They forgot about love for God. They'd forgotten of love for Christ. And so as you think about that, think about that already in anticipation of next week, of what are the ways in that you look at your life and you're like, okay, yeah, you know what, things are pretty good, you know, I'm part of this church, you know, I think I'm doing good with doctrine. But if you really look inwardly, do you love Jesus? Are you passionate about Jesus? Are you encountering Jesus? Are you being formed as a disciple and then living on mission out of a posture of love rather than religious duty? Now we're going to dig into this over the coming weeks. But I want to close today with verse 3 of chapter 1 of this revelation of Jesus Christ. It'll be on the screen for us. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The words of Revelation, the review that we will be doing of these seven churches, blessed are those who hear and blessed are those who keep what is written in it. They're not just ideas to fill our minds. They're concepts. It's a way of life that we are to practice in our apprenticeship and our formation under Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, there is a, a lot here. God, we recognize that Revelation is not a simple book or letter to understand because it comes to us from a time Lord Jesus, using a type of literature that we are not entirely familiar with. Yet, Lord Jesus, we also recognize as we begin this study that this book came as a great encouragement and a challenge to our brothers and sisters. Who, God, many would go on to lose their life because they would refuse to worship the emperor as God. Lord Jesus, we want to be a faithful people. 
Yet we also need clarity on the primary things and what are other things, Lord Jesus, that are okay to let go. So God, I just submit our church family to you in this season. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would challenge each of us individually, but Lord, that you would challenge us collectively as a church. God, that these letters written to these churches would be an encouragement, they would be a challenge, but then, Lord Jesus, as verse 3 of chapter 1 encourages us, that we would hear them and that we would practice, and that we would be formed as your disciples increasingly. We love you, Jesus, and thank you for the opportunity that we have as your people to meet freely. May we not take this for granted, and may we worship you as King not only in our words and in our song on Sunday mornings, but with the entirety of our life. We love you. Amen.